Hi, it's John Taffer from Bar Rescue. Did you know the second building in America was a tavern? When I built my new restaurant franchise concept, Taffer's Tavern, I thought back to the roots of what makes a tavern a tavern. Timeless character. All while delivering an unbelievably delicious food and beverage experience. That paired with my 40 plus years in the industry provides a clear roadmap to success. Do you have what it takes to be a Taffer's Tavern franchisee? If so, I'd love to hear from you. Visit franchise.tafferstavern.com. Holidays are here, and so is fashionable fitness. Gift yourself a Samsung Galaxy Z Flip 3 5G, a phone that folds in half to literally stand on its own. Pair it with the Galaxy Watch 4 for ultimate wellness and wow factor. Check health stats, flex personal records. Over 90 activities can be tracked, like biking, swimming, golfing, and more. Invest in yourself with tech made to crush goals. Holidays open up with Galaxy. Shop it all at Samsung.com. 5G connection and availability may vary. Check with Carrier. Products sold separately. Hey everyone, this is the Almost World Podcast. Bringing to you mind-blowing interviews with guests from all over the world. So settle down, relax, and enjoy the show. Oh yeah, by the way, if you like the podcast, please support Elmo's World Podcast on Patreon. Your support is what helps the podcast improve more and more. Welcome to Elmo's World Podcast. Hey man, um, how are you? I'm doing okay. We were just talking a little bit before the start of the show. Um, my name is Kalia Rivet. Um, my, my clients uh, or patients or students uh, often uh, call me Cal. Uh, I'm a speech therapist by training. Um, uh, and, uh, but I'm sort of an amateur, I suppose, philosopher and theologian, um, really only to the extent that any believer in God is. Um, I was just explaining prior to the start of the show how I uh, was an atheist for many years. I was actually raised Hare Krishna, I don't know if you or any of your listeners would necessarily know who those people are. That, that's a form of Hinduism, but it's one which caught on in the global West uh, during the 60s and 70s under the leadership of one um, A.C. Bhaktivedanta, a.k.a. Swami Prabhupada. My father is a, is a, is a disciple of uh, Prabhupada, and I was raised a Hare Krishna, but at age 16, I lost my faith, sort of unwillingly. I just felt like the philosophical foundations were not there for any uh, theistic belief. And um, I was an atheist for about at least 12 years after that, but, but really longer because starting around age 28 or uh, 29, I, I was really desirous of, of um, uh, faith. Uh, again, I was, I was really seeking faith despite not being able to offer any firm intellectual foundation for it. And um, it was last year, just, just a little bit before uh, July of last year, maybe in June, where things philosophically came together for the first time in my life uh, in such a way that I felt like I 
had um, uh, a sufficient philosophical foundation for theistic belief um, uh, really for the first time in my life. Um, and uh, so that's, that's been really huge. I mean, that's, that's actually, you know, of incalculable si significance. And, um, uh, you know, when I was, when I was your age and dealing with some of the existential issues that you seem now to be dealing with, you know, I could have really used faith. Um, um, but I didn't, I didn't have it. And, um, that, that's, that's the advice I would give to myself, uh, my younger self, if I could, uh, have, uh, if I could send him, uh, a message in a bottle or something like that, if, if I, if I had a time machine, but I could only sort of convey, uh, two or three words, uh, to my younger self, or, you know, just, just a short phrase, I, I would say, you know, keep the faith, you know, believe, believe in God, because God is, God is very real. And it's, and it's not, that's not just a matter of blind faith, the, the, the philosophical logic behind his existence is determinate. And uh, so how did you come upon this, uh, I guess, uh, much more reliable and stable philosophical foundation on your faith? Well, for me, it was when I, you might say, rediscovered the so-called cognitive theoretic model of the universe by Christopher Langan. So I was aware of that. Uh, so who is Langan? Langan is, is, an, is an autodidact, you might say an amateur philosopher, but to me that doesn't really do him full justice. He doesn't have a degree, um, but I think as a philosopher, he's, he's really uh, quite something. And I, I think that he's going to be uh, very influential in the decades to come. Um, but, uh, he, he developed a, um, basically a theory of everything called the cognitive theoretic model of the universe, which can be viewed philosophically as a species of idealism. Um, and I was aware of that theory at age 20 or so, 19 or 20, because I had read about Langan in a book by Malcolm Gladwell called the outliers. And um, I, uh, I, w I was aware of it from that time, but when I looked into it as a, as a younger man, I, well, I didn't understand a lot of it. And there's still a great deal of its sort of subtleties and mechanics, uh, which, which um, escaped me. But uh, when I first looked into it, I, I couldn't really make heads or tails of it, except I could see that it was espousing um, uh, a species of uh, philosophical idealism. And I thought at that time that I had good grounds to reject idealism. And so I basically uh, thought it was a non-starter, except a couple of its ideas managed to work their way into my head. Well, fast forward to when I got older, um, I revisited the, the CTMU. That was last year. And... Um, when I looked into it again, I realized that the reasons, my reasons for initially rejecting it were not valid reasons. And I, and I yeah, well, I had a decade basically of, of philosophical reflection and distance and perspective between, you know, age 20 and age 30. And uh, during that time, I was able to really look at, at 
my initial reasons for rejecting that theory and see that they were, uh, I'll say again, they, they were not valid. And then when I reread the theory, its points landed in a new way that they hadn't before. And I realized that, it, in my opinion, he's, he's really onto something. Um, I think that the, the CTMU is going to be very influential uh, in philosophy in the years to come. It's just going to take a while because he's not an academic philosopher. So uh, can you tell us, I guess, uh, in, more, in more detail what the cognitive theoretical model of the universe entails? I'm not going to be able to do it full justice especially now at this time of day, as I was explaining to you earlier, I, I kind of do better in the mornings. Um, in the afternoons, sometimes my brain crashes pretty hard, but I'll give it a stab. Chris Langan uh, describes the cognitive theoretic model of the universe as a, well, it's a theory of everything. It says that ultimate reality is a self-configuring, self-processing language. In more uh, sort of layman's terms, uh, Reality is a language talking to itself about itself. And for Langan, ultimate reality is God. Uh, ultimate reality is, is everything real. And it's also conscious in a global way of itself because there's nothing else for it to be conscious of. And um, it, it has the attributes which are classically attributed to God, omniscience, omnipotence, um, you might, you might even say omnibenevolence, but, but the, the, the teleology or the, the will of God is, is something about which uh, there, there, there can be debate. You know, one, one can debate sort of exactly what, what God's will is and what his stance toward uh, his, his creatures um, is. But um, that's a very rough sketch of what the, the, the CTMU is at least according to me, but I want to say that my explanations or discussions um, of this theory should not be taken as isomorphic to the theory itself. Um, I, I'm not the best expositor of that theory. For anyone who's interested in it, I would advise them to go to the source. Um, his website is hology.org. That's H-O-L-O-G-Y dot org. And then over there, you can get a, a, a really solid explanation um uh, in the author's own words uh okay well uh, i guess um there are some very basic questions that i would like to ask about the ctmu right um so if it says that the universe is uh i guess uh you know the the universe talks about itself and and everything um and you say that ultimate reality is everything that is real so and uh, god is real so god is also part of ultimate reality right but is uh, everything in ultimate reality god or is there something or is there anything that isn't god in ultimate reality well you're going immediately to a very fundamental issue and i'm going to explain it as best as i know how to explain it and again this isn't necessarily the explanation that langenwood offers so um i'll say at this point on you're basically getting my views they're strongly influenced by Langan, so I don't want to take credit for them exactly, but I also um, want to sort of reserve the blame for myself if anything that I say uh, diverges from, from his theory or is in any way um, inaccurate. I mean, all of us, I think, we, we ultimately have flawed and inaccurate and limited 
theological models. Um, if only because they, they don't they don't compare to the model which God has of of Himself, um, they're only approximations. Um, but um, so, I would say that this question of of pantheism, you know, does God equal the universe? It has to be disambiguated carefully before we can really enter into a proper discussion of that question. What do people mean by universe, for example? When scientists use the word universe, um, very often they seem not to be thinking of something which is singular. Although the name universe implies that we're talking about a singular ultimate reality. After all, the prefix une is supposed to mean one. And yet scientists speak of multiverses. So multiple universes in a way is kind of an oxymoron so that just shows the degree to which it's sort of a loose term as, as, as applied in science, you know, which is supposedly more hard-nosed than theology. What, is, what does it mean in theology, though? What does universe mean in theology? I think that the way it gets used, most of the time it means everything physical. But for Langan, that term is reserved for everything real. And God is equated to the universe where the universe means everything real. So everything real can be understood as a sort of self-including set of all sets. Now, for anyone familiar with conventional set theory, you'll know that in conventional set theory, you can't have a, a self-including set of all sets. It's something to do with the necessity of each set being contained by a power set of greater cardinality. There's a sort of paradox in conventional set theory where um, for, a, for a set of all sets, to be contained by its power set, that implies that it has less cardinality than its power set, power set, roughly speaking. But if it has less cardinality than the power set, then it's not truly the set of all sets. So is, that's really the question. Is it, is it contained by its power set or does it contain the power set? Um, either way, there are problems in conventional set theory. But for Langan, he defines two senses of containment in his um, uh, sort of set theory, the set theory that he develops in conjunction with his development of the CTMU, um, such that his set of all sets can include itself, sorry, can include its power set in one sense of containment while being included by its power set in another set of containment. Um, and this enables him to, to have a, a self-including set of all sets. So for him, it's like, God is equated to the universe where the universe means everything real. And that, that set of all sets includes itself because in order to be real, it has to be a member of itself too. So is God, is God the universe or is he a being in the universe? Well, the answer is it's, it's more like he's the universe, but, but, but he has the, he has the ability to, to move and, um, uh, he has the ability to direct events in an intelligent way within the universe. He's not, he's not the, the passive pantheistic God of, of nature where God is equi equated to, the, to physical laws and he's not understood to be intelligent or personal. Um, uh, I think that the God described in uh, the CTMU 
Bear's description as possessing an intellect and a will, or what Langan calls teleology. And um, to that extent, it's, it's probably better seen or better understood as personal rather than impersonal. So pantheism is not, you can say that it's a pantheistic theory, and that, that will make sense up to a certain point, but that may, not, that may not be the most accurate word for the CTMU in every context or every respect. Did that begin to answer your question? Does that make sense? Because like, here's the problem. Otherwise, if you say that the universe is everything real and God is outside the universe, then he's not real. Um, now, if you say that God is, is the universe itself, it's like saying, well, he's just the set. He's, he's being itself. He's the ground of being. And that gives you something like, um, uh, that gives you something like the transcendence of God, but it's unclear how that can also be personal and, and an agent in our reality. There's, there's something in us which reaches for a panentheistic conception of God in which he is both arena and agent. In my view, the CTMU is well-suited to uh, satisfy those conditions. But otherwise, we sort of have this um, tension and you see it all throughout theology between classical theism, in which God is more understood as the ground of being, and um, process theism, in which the personal nature of God is emphasized and his ability to be an agent in reality is, is, is emphasized. The thing is, if you just have one or the other by itself, it feels a little unsatisfactory. If God is just, an, if God is just a being in reality, then... Um, uh, his existence seems contingent, sort of in the way that uh, uh, a polytheistic or pagan god like Zeus sort of just exists. Where did he come from? Yet, I mean, like uh, he, his existence seems uh, contingent. Like he doesn't exist necessarily. We have to account for where he came from. So that's that's a, that's a. That's a point of distinction that many classical theists would emphasize between, you know, the God of the Bible as they see him and uh, a sort of pagan God like Zeus. The God of the Bible understood as the ground of being exists necessarily. And, and some being within the universe or within reality uh, is, is, by contrast, contingent um, in his existence. And um, the problem is that the, the theistic personalists would push back against classical theism and say the ground of being doesn't really work as an, as a, as a picture of the personal God, something. So, and, and now see, I'm, I'm betraying my own limitations as a philosopher and theologian, but one can easily appreciate how something so absolutely absolute or unlimitedly unlimited cannot be validly limited, cannot be validly limited by predicates like personal or love, because if he's totally unlimited, but he's also pure love, or he's also a person, that means he's not not love and not not a person, respectively. So these are limits. It, it seems inappropriate. Many theological traditions have have preferred to see God as um, you know totally infinite, totally unlimited, and to that extent, not personal. Um, he's, he's, he's just like this inconceivable mystery that we can hardly refer to with language. So again, I want to kind of emphasize how there, if you have just either one by itself, God is just arena or God is just agent, then there, there seem to be problems. And, and some people try to get around this by saying that, 
you know, the whole dichotomy I set up uh, uh, is, is not valid because, um, uh, because there's different senses of the word real. But for Langan, you know, the, the immediate question to ask is, are those senses of real interoperable? You know, maybe creatures are sense in, or maybe creatures are real in sense A, and God is real in sense B. So God is real in a different sense. Okay, but is God, are God and his creatures able to interact? If yes, then that means that there's some common level of reality underneath, you know, reality in sense A and reality in sense B. Um, uh, you know, this is basically an illustration of uh, Langan's principle of syndifionesis. And um, if there is a more fundamental level of reality, which is really properly what you think of when you think of God as the ground of being, then I can just say what I mean by universe is everything real in this most fundamental sense, everything real in any sense at all. And then here you got to answer it. Is God, is God the universe or is he merely a creature within the universe? The non-idealist response here is typically to, to see God as, a, as an entity within the universe, but that raises its own problems, including the problems that, that come from denying philosophical idealism. Anyway, that was extremely long-winded. Actually, um, yeah, and I, I, I got most of it, I guess. Uh, you mentioned that the universe is conscious. So when, right, and because it's, you know, it talks to itself about itself. And, mm -hmm. uh, and what, how, what do you mean by conscious? Do you mean that the universe is, uh, is, a con is actually, you know, God's, God's uh, mind or in or in a in a way the ideal the Christ the theistic idealism that uh, that you know that most uh, uh, idealists have. I think um, the latter is is a pretty good approximation. So okay, it, when, when Paul so in says sense, that um, in God we live and mm -hmm. move and have our being, we're mm -hmm. God, but but understanding God as a consciousness in in whom we sort of reside as. Well, you know, ideas as a first approximation, but Langan would say we, 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 the role that we play in God's consciousness is that of identity operators or syntactors. If God, see, for, for Langan, anything intelligible reduces to language, you know, and so for Langan, consciousness also reduces to language in some sense. Uh, and uh, so for Langan, ultimate reality is a, is a, is a conscious, self-configuring, self-processing language. And in that language, um, beings like you and I um, operate as linguistic operators uh, in uh, the course of uh, ultimate reality's sort of uh, self-configuration. Uh, and uh, so, but as a first approximation, I think it works to, to view us as ideas in the mind of God. So in that sense, um, every person in the world is substantially uh, made of conscious, I guess, the mater you know, conscious material, right? In, 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 in a way, we are like uh, characters in God's dream. You know, it's an analogy, but not, not in a literal sense, but... It's in a similar fashion. To the extent that it makes sense to speak of conscious material, and I can sort of see what 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 you've got in your mind. Yes, and 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 characters in God's dream, sort of yes, and 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 that means that at the end of the day, if you have a relationship between us and God, between Elmo and God, for example, that means that 
God is not absolutely distinct from you, and you or you are not absolutely distinct from God. You are distinct from God in the sense that you are not ultimate reality. You are you are a part thereof. Um, but but you're not you're not wholly distinct from God. There is a level of identity um, that you share with God, and I'm less qualified or able to talk about this. Arguably, I'm not really qualified to talk about any of it, but. Uh, you know, I think I've introduced enough caveats to make that clear. Yeah, but um, it, so it sort of, uh, um, I guess, you know, touches the waters of uh, like, um, well, you know, if if one can say, if I can say that I am, so, uh, I guess, sort of identical to God in a way, but not, but not all of them. It's it's sort of saying that I am part of God as well, right? In in this yeah uh, yeah yeah. So so we have to be real careful about you know how mm-hmm. we explain this. And I think I think theologians from other traditions have attempted to cap- encapsulate this. For example, Ramanuja with its qualified non-dualism in the Hindu tradition, or even if you speak of someone uh, more near in time from from the specific sub tradition or or denomination or sect that I was raised in, Hare Krishna. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu with his, with his doctrine of achintya beta abeta, um, uh, characterizing the relationship between Atman and Brahman. It's really a similar thing as what we're talking about with Langan here, the self and, and, and God or ultimate reality. Um, for, for Langan, God is, well, see, you know, here's how I would explain it as a first approximation. God is a consciousness we are the contents of his consciousness, which means that on some level, God is the structure of the consciousness and we're the contents in it. And so to an extent, that means that the relationship between us and God is like the, tr- the relationship between the terminal and the non-terminal, the, the specific and the general, the value and the variable. Um, and um, it's a little bit like if you have a car, you know, you never, there's never a car that's just car. Um, and the level of reality that you and I move around in, everything is maximally specified. There's never a car that's simply just car. It's always a specific car. You know, it's a, it's a Toyota Camry from a certain year, right? So in some sense, every car is in the image of car, but they're all very, they're all very specified specifications of that idea. And it's a similar thing between us and God, if I understand Langan correctly on his view. The highest level of your identity is, is God. Um, uh, and, um, but, but there is a, a way in which what God experiences himself through you, uh, you're like sort of, he, he experiences himself through you, you know, with your, with your eyes and ears and your senses and, and, and your physical capability physical capabilities so mm-hmm. it's it's a kind of well what augustine said god is superior sumo meo and interior intimo meo so he's he's higher than my highest but more inward than my inmost um just like uh i think the prophet muhammad said god is nearer to you than the vein in your neck so it's like a very intimate kind of sameness and difference like again like um chaitanya mahaprabhu said he said achintya beta beta that means inconceivable difference and non-difference i don't know if it's strictly inconceivable um um but uh it it's it's this kind of 
it's this kind of, again, not absolute identity, not absolute difference. It's, mm -hmm. it's different from classical theism in that respect, because mm -hmm. classical theism does emphasize a very harsh uh, and, and distinct um, difference um, between uh, uh, creature and creator. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all right. Well, I guess um, in, in, the, in this uh, sense, right, if you have the CTMU, and uh, of course, it would, uh, I guess, collect coherently with the rest of your worldview, world right? Including, of course, your Christian theology. I, you know, so that's the thing. So my theology is so different than most Christians' theology. I'm almost hesitant to call myself a Christian because I feel like it might even give people... It might... I'll tell you, I'll tell you right now. I believe, I believe Jesus... My faith is that Jesus is God. Jesus is human and divine. That's my faith. So in that sense, I can, without hesitation, say that I'm a Christian. However, the rest of my theology is quite, quite different. And, and I'm almost hesitant to use the word Christian because it feels almost misleading. Because I know people are going to have one idea, and I'm actually going to be sort of way outside that box. Well, we're all, we're all heretics at some point. I agree. I, well, I, I kind of think so because, you know, there's, there's concepts in Christianity that at least is traditionally defined are so tricky to wrap one's head around. Well, actually, you can't, that, that people end up talking about them in borderline heretical ways. I'm thinking especially of the Trinity, but to a lesser extent, also the incarnation. If you, you know, sort of, sort of adhere to the Nicene Creed, you know, uh, then you probably do count as a I do. You know, Christian. I, I, I can and I do. All right, cool, cool. <laughs> Anyways, um, so can you talk about the, uh, your views on God's nature and, you know, I guess uh, in correspondence to CTMU as well? Okay, so just to um, briefly sketch it out, I would again draw upon the CTMU concept of uh, syndifionesis, which says that any two things, any two relands, if you like, any two relata, if they can be... Um, related to each other, even if that relation is a difference relation, then that means there's something underneath both of them, which is more fundamental to either of them. They both inhabit a common medium, what Langan, I guess, would call a syntactic medium. But it just means to say that, you know, if there's Elmo and there's me, then there's something more fundamental, a more generic idea beneath both of us. Um, and so that's the principle of syndifionesis. And if you do syndifionic regression, you just keep taking any two things and, you know, going down to this common substrate, and then you take another substrate and juxtapose it to that at that level of generality and go down yet another level of generality. Eventually, you're going to come to something like, uh, uh, something like um, what for an idealist would be the ground of being the most ultimate medium in which binary oppositions are embedded. X or not X are sort of embedded, you know, that, that, that opposition between X and not X, which is like sort of the basic principle of non-contradiction, that's embedded in something which is uh, neither X nor not X, both X and not X. The idea here is something like that even logic is defined on its complement, that if there's logic, there's, there's, if there's the concept of logic, there's the concept of contradiction. After all, we can only really define, we cannot define logic without reference to contradiction. Logic is the art of reasoning while avoiding something that starts with the letter C, avoiding, you know, paradox and contradiction. So if you get down to it, 
that's that's you get down to the bedrock or the bottom that's what the ctmu calls ubt again don't take me as an authoritative expositor of this this is just my own conception and, and understanding but um as i see it the the bottom uh is uh the, you know that neither x nor not x slash both x and not x is what the ctmu identifies as ubt or unbound telesis he langan also calls it informational nil constraint and that makes the concept more clear some people say like just to have the idea of contradiction involves a, a paradox of reference where sort of like um the DAO that can be named is not the DAO. But I think you can validly refer to this if you introduce a sort of first order, second order distinction such that it's like the only constraint we can put on this informational nil constraint is the second order constraint that on the first order level, there be no constraints. It's not tall or short, it's not light or dark, um, it's not heavy or light, etc. All we can say about it is that we can't say anything about it. So that that is, you know, and, and that's a valid concept because that's just the idea of contradiction. And the proof of the validity of that concept is the fact that um, without the idea of contradiction, you don't have any definition of logic. So, you know, you, 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 you can and in fact must be able to reference the idea of contradiction, which is all I think that the idea of UBT is. But if you look at that from, a, from an idealist frame, then that's something like the ground of being because its total lack of informational specification means that it represents infinite ontological potential and it highlights the, the deep similarity between infinity and nothingness, the deep sort of conceptual similarity there between. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I guess like, um, you know, you when you... In uh, in layman's terms, when you say that uh, you know, when it I get I guess that sort of answers the question, the paradoxes uh, or the problems of like, can God uh, lie or not lie? Right? Can I'm God sorry, no, it it doesn't. I that was only the first step toward it. So you know, I I really should have. I'm sorry, I didn't do a good. I I forgot where I was going with that whole thing. Basically, if you want to look at this in trinitarian terms, I would say that the ground of being is the father um, that infinite ontological potential and pure freedom can be uh, on some level uh, uh, analogized to the father. You know, I think, you know, I am a partialist as far as Trinitarian theology goes and that, which means I think ultimate reality slash God can be factorized in different ways, which for some people that's already like going way too far. But I, as, as we pointed out, I'm, I'm a heretic. So uh, I, I think you can identify God, the father with the ground of being. And then, and then um, if you sort of look at ultimate reality uh, in panpsychic terms, the sum of all consciousnesses, that super consciousness in whom we live and move and have our being can re be regarded as the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, um, which is something like, you know, the son in Trinitarian theology, but the pre-incarnate word of God. And then for me, in my own Trinity, um, my own conception of the Trinity, love is the principle which governs what new realities are actualized out of the UBT or informational nil constraint. And it also governs um, the process of, it, 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 al it also governs and decides which, um, you know, 
basically it 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 governs the process of um you know how new realities are actualized and how old realities are returned to that state of 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 nothingness um slash infinite possibility so love is the reason why things come into and exit uh the stage of being in the way that they do it's it's the dynamic between the father and the son if you like so that's that's sort of my um conception of the trinity um and so that's for me how i get around the tension between classical theism and, and theistic personalism Cla- the god of classical theism can be identified as the ground of being um slash ubt and the um the uh, the god of theistic personalism can be identified with the sort of the super consciousness in whom we live and move and have our being the logos and in, in whose mind we are ideas okay and uh, about the how about the holy spirit um what's his his role so for me as a sort of as a believer in panpsychism i believe that god experiences everything that that his creatures experience in some level the relationship between us and god is the relationship between one of your neurons and 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 your whole brain that what god feels is the sum of what his creatures feel so that very that straight away explains why god is invested in us um he that explains it takes a lot of ingredients to fix or build a car like cooking but without the frozen dinner easy way out eBay Motors has 122 million parts. It's always the right fitment, so you can follow any recipe to a T. Whether it's a vintage Italian coupe that's classic like grandma's meatballs or a German luxury car that's as complicated as Oma's Rouladen, to cook up something great in the garage, use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Hi, it's John Taffer from Bar Rescue. Did you know the second building in America was a tavern? When I built my new restaurant franchise concept, Taffer's Tavern, I thought back to the roots of what makes a tavern a tavern. Timeless character. All while delivering an unbelievably delicious food and beverage experience. That paired with my 40 plus years in the industry provides a clear roadmap to success. Do you have what it takes to be a Taffer's Tavern franchisee? If so, I'd love to hear from you. Visit franchise.tafferstavern.com. Why he is love. Although, see, for a lot of people, they would say that's going way too far. You should never be able to explain the sense in which God is love. You can't you can't understand God on that level. And um you know, how I would how I would really put it because it, it the way I, the way i sketched it out it seems to invite further questions of like how how god can even relate to us as as a separate being um, if we're all you know part of his mind in such an intimate fashion and what i would have one think um in response to that question is think about your own consciousness and how in some sense everything that you interact with is part of your own consciousness including other people The reason why other people feel like other people to you is there are limits on what you can know about them over the longest of time frames at least there are limits on the power that you have over them and for a god who is not infinitely powerful or undefinedly powerful a god who is limited just not externally limited he's self-limited you know it's it's one can see in theory how he might not the 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 sort of executive intelligence of his consciousness might not have total and utter control over each one of its neurons 
there's a sort of flow and back and forth. But see, that's that's hugely heretical for many people. That's that's like that's that's my process theism. But if you can get your mind around that, then you can begin to see how again, the relationship between us and God is not one of complete identity or complete dissimilarity or distinction. Um, but but there there is, I think, a personal relationship, uh, a back and forth. Uh, within a sort of intimate union. And uh, uh, Cal, um, you know, I guess, you know, you have, uh, we, we have had a, a, a long conversation on this and maybe uh, we, can, I, we can boil it down to three topics, uh, you know, to end this and uh, you could, you know, summarize it. Um, I would like to ask you about um, origins, salvation, and then I guess a destination. So when I say origins, like, uh, uh, is God eternal in the, um, is God uh, is the universe eternal itself? Because you know, we, we if we are a pan, I guess uh, we are part of God's consciousness. Therefore, like, what we're, what, do we emerge at some point in time, or are we, are we always are we all eternal as well? Second, I guess in terms of salvation. So, how does uh, uh, believing in 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 Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior actually work? You know, how does that uh, the salvation of one's soul? Uh, I guess uh, achieve uh, des- um, salvation from, or I guess redemption as well. So and also I guess for destination, um, is there a heaven and hell, and uh, what what is it? Okay, wonderful. So um, the first question, if I remember correctly, was that of origins. Well, and is the universe eternal? So. Let's disambiguate once again what we mean by universe. Where universe means everything physical, I don't believe that's eternal. I believe that came into being. Um, well, so so here, here's the here's the deal. Well, we we when we talk about time, we also need to disambiguate what we mean by time, because very often what we mean what we seem to mean by that is um, the fourth dimension of the space time manifold. Now, before the Big Bang. Did that exist? No, that's, that's an invalid question. However, if you believe that, you know, in God, we live and move and have our being. And if you believe, moreover, that, that consciousness always involves something like the interplay between space and time, or in more general terms, between state and syntax, information and cognition. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing heavily from, from Langanian concepts here then it means that in the mind of God, no matter how, no matter like how n-dimensional the, the consciousness of God is, like let's say it's way more than four-dimensional, it's like, uh, let, let's say it, it has a hundred billion dimensions. You might say, you know, uh, on the hundred billion and first dimension, that is time, except God is always able for to God, for God, that's, that's God's time, but not time in the sense of some mind independent element in which God is suspended, but rather time because t- properly time is a mode of thought. It's, it's never, it's never some element that a mind just inhabits, but which can exist apart from minds. That's a very f- flawed way of looking at time. So time is always an activity of minds. And so you might say if God's consciousness at a given time involves a billion dimension, then for God, the dimension of successive change is like uh, the billion and first dimension. But see, God is always able to, to, to define a new level 
of time and spatialize that old level of time. He can always abstract um, out and away. He can always um, move to higher dimensional. Uh, he can always move to higher dimensions, you know, um, of, uh, if you like, space-time or this generalization of the space-time manifold. God is able to move all through that in any direction he pleases. Um, so, uh, so if we talk about our 4D space-time manifold sort of coming into, how to put it, there's no way we can speak of it coming into existence or something causing it, you know, on the fourth dimension because, you know, prior to the Big Bang on, on the fourth dimension, nothing existed. But if there's a fifth dimension or meta time along which, you know, realities like ours are parametrized and generated, then we can speak of a beginning or meta beginning of the universe where universe means our physical corner of the cosmos, but not where universe means everything real, i.e. God. So where, where universe means everything real, i.e. God, it is not legitimate to speak of a beginning or end in my view. And the reason for this can be seen uh, along idealist lines. So first, I, I mean, if you say first it was no God and then there was God, that, that presupposes a time-like operation. If you say first there was no time and then there was time, that, that presupposes like that there was already time. So it's a little self-contradictory. But if you say first there was no God and then there's God, that's an operation. And in order for it to have ontological reality, at least for an idealist like me, it needs to take place in a mind. So the operation of God's coming into existence in order to be real has to occur in a mind. But, but the most ultimate mind in which any operation occurs is by definition that of God. Because um, in the CTMU, God is ultimate reality. He's defined on regression. So... It's never legitimate to speak of the sen any sense in which God comes into being, nor for similar reasons is it ever legitimate to speak of the sense in which God exits being. Because if first there was God and then there was no God, then that's an operation too. In order to have ontological reality, it has to occur in a mind. But the most ultimate mind in which any operation occurs by definition is that of God. Therefore, if you speak of God coming out of existence, that can only be to be that can only be to presuppose the existence of God's mind in another way. There's no breaking out of this. Um, it is perhaps what Langan would call uh, uh, logically idempotent. Um, it, it, in, order to, in order to disagree with it, you have to presuppose it. And if you try to break out of it, you're always gonna face insoluble problems. Okay, hopefully that answers your question about beginnings. Can you remind me what your second question is? Salvation. Okay. Me, I don't know this for sure, but I incline heavily toward belief that in the end, all are saved. Um, how does salvation work? So when Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, one way to interpret that is like, I have to know historically about Jesus in order to be saved. For various reasons, including the fact that the Old Testament patriarchs didn't seem to know about the historical Jesus, if only because he didn't exist yet at the time they existed, I find that view insufficient. I incline toward the view that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, there's something truly universal about that, such that if someone somewhere in China who's never heard of Jesus, nonetheless acts out agape or, or, or selfless love to its self-sacrificing limit, 
or the highest ideal of which he can conceive, which is not to say that he emulates Christ in his perfection, because none of us are capable of that. But if someone sort of lays down his life for his friends, for the highest motives of which he can conceive, I don't think that action can bear description as anything other than Christ. So for me, there's a universal sense um, uh, in which, are you familiar with, with um, uh, C.S. Lewis and, and um, The Last Battle? And, and um, Emmeth at the end, he, he says, you know, how, God, how can you accept me? Because what I did, I did for Tash. And, and, and uh, Aslan says that um, it, if, if there's any truth in, in, a, in an oath that one has sworn, then I am the truth, uh, you know, by which one has kept that oath, something like that. It's saying that you can't do right apart from God. I believe that truth and, and moral goodness are universal. And to the extent that anyone participates in those, it's only with and through God. And, and I believe that when Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life, um, it means that there's something inescapable about Christ such that you, you can never, there's, there's no way in engaging in any kind of moral action, however imperfect, apart from Christ. So anyway, I see something universal about that. I don't think that it's a matter. Of, I, I don't think that people who never heard of Jesus are simply screwed. Uh, 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 I, I think that um, God is great in mercy. Um, I think that he takes all factors into account, including our ignorance, which is substantial and never comparable to his not to the level of knowledge, which God has. Um, and, um, but salvation. So, okay. So, because of the emphasis that I lay on, on works rather than sort of this cognitive picture and like in getting the theology right, which is so often the emphasis in uh, mainstream Protestantism, at least in my corner of the world, but probably yours too. Um, uh, some people say that I emphasize works and they also might be tempted to think that I believe one can buy one's salvation or guarantee one's sal salvation by acting the right way, but that's not how I see it. How I see it is Jesus is the ideal. Um, he doesn't just represents the ideal. He, he, he fully embodies it. And, and so he's the ideal of self-sacrificing love that God wants us all to emulate and participate in really to enter into him through communion and, and the sacraments. But that's another thing. Um, um, and, um, if we commit to that ideal, that's faith. If we commit to that, then um, even if we stumble, because we've committed to this ideal, God will forgive us. Uh, it, uh, you know, despite our imperfections in acting out this ideal, because he knows, he knows that we're not perfect like his son, Jesus. That's why, that's why he had to, had, had to incarnate as Jesus in order to set the highest moral example for us, because none of us was capable of setting it on our own. Um, so it's like, if you commit to this ideal, then God is going to be forgiving because he knows that you're at least trying, but if you don't commit to this ideal, you're not even trying, then God is not going to be so forgiving. He's going to have to disabuse you of whatever illusion is causing you, um, uh, to refrain from faith in the ideal that he has, uh, set before us in the person of Jesus, which is embodied in the person of, of, of Jesus. 
I don't know if that made any sense. Uh, I, guess, I, I guess like um, the, my question about it is that, you know, if uh, Christ's life and death and resurrection, uh, it, 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 it would have been, it, 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 it is a, uh, the greatest example of, you know, selfless. And, it's uh, at least the highest moral example that is available to us. But whether his death on the cross accomplished something metaphysical like the like the, the paying the price for all sin for all time, I do not know the answer to that. I've thought about that a lot, and to me, it raises sort of it it it, it raises serious theological issues. However, you come down on it, I don't know the answer to that. But the Nicene Creed doesn't specify that we have to believe in one atonement theory or another. So hopefully, I can be agnostic about about you know something like penal substitution. In fact, I have serious doubts about penal substitution, but hopefully I can entertain those doubts while still being something like an Orthodox Christian. This is very, very interesting. And, uh, you know, I guess uh, this is not new to me, you know, the, these uh, types of, of the theologies. But in terms of, you know, you, uh, how you've uh, determined this to be the case, um, which, which came, how did you come about it? Did you come about it through like uh, inspection of the Bible and then interpreting it uh, into uh, doctrines and uh, inculcating it in your theories or did the philosophy come first? Well, that's real tough because at the time that I was drawing on the philosophy, most of which um, I learned from Langan, it feels like. At that time I was already, as I said before, I was already, by that time I had accumulated a certain amount of knowledge about the Bible, and other world religions. So it's not really super easy for me to say which came first. You know, I would say it's been a lifelong project. I think for everyone, your whole life, whether you realize it or not, is, is, is learning about God. Because everyone has a concept of ultimate reality, whether or not that's a personal God, and whether or not that's specifically the personal God of Christianity or Islam or, or, or what have you. Everyone has a concept of ultimate reality um, and, and, and one's whole existence for the rest of eternity, is an education in, in what God is. It's not like now that at 31 years old, if I, if I affirm the right creed or the right confession, then I've figured it out and like now I understand God. No, it's going to take eternity to understand God, which is to say I will never understand God. That process of learning Him will never end. But my whole existence is an education in, 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 in God, uh, who is the fullness of all beauty and goodness and truth. All right. Well, in, in in relation to salvation, then, so how does one act in life in order to? I would say that one acts out the the moral example represented by Jesus. But even that's not going far enough because I would say that moral example, that the highest code of conduct is is embodied by Jesus. Because it's like, if if you like me are a bit of a process theist and you view reality as like almost Taoistically as like this dynamic between freedom and constraint such that everything is ever changing um then you you don't believe that that the that the environment that you inhabit is always going to stay the way it is and that's another way of saying that there's no static rule set which will stand you in good ste good stead for every environment that you face and that also means that in a finite book like the bible you can't encode some static set of rules that are just going to be um valid for any environment or you can but they will be at such a level of generality that it, for most practical purposes they won't be very helpful so in such a ever-changing um environment or reality i think that it's not a rule set or meta rule set 
which can be equated with like the highest moral example or code of conduct. I think it's a person, but you know, I'm still a little bit, I'm still a little bit unclear on exactly how I derive that intuition. Um, but I think it, that, that it's a person, it's Christ Jesus. And so it's not just really at the end, the limit, it's not, yeah, see, that's the thing. He's a limit, but anyway, so, so um, as in calculus, but, but, but so the thing is, it's not just acting out the ideal represented by him. It's actually participating in him with, with communion, for example, but, but more than that, it's, you know, you, you pray to Jesus, you have a relationship with Jesus, right? And so a lot of people say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And that, that, that relationship that one has with Jesus, just talking to him, imagining that he's standing next to you and asking yourself, what would Jesus do? You know, this is also communion with Jesus and participating in his being in his body. Well, you know, if you, you mentioned earlier in terms of God's nature, right, that the Logos, you know, is the, the encompassing, I guess, the, you know, the, the, I guess, uh, in ter- I guess we would call it like the structure of the universe, right? I, I forgot the right term. But, no, you're, um, you're, 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 you're tracking me. Yeah, I would say that I would say that the level of existence where uh, we can speak of logical differentiation. So yeah, and, and so in, in this sense, so if Jesus or the, is the you know the historical Jesus is the Son of God that, that is that you spoke of of the Trinity, then and, and I think if, the historical Jesus was yeah I think he was a he he was and is a human being who well. It's a little bit like almost like the video game character of God. Like when you play a video game, are you your character? You are and you aren't. For the purposes of the, the, the earthly reality that he inhabited, he was God in the sense that he was like a perfect expression of God's positive will. He was a translation of God's will into another medium, if that makes any sense. Interesting. But well, if he was sort of just a projection of God, then he wasn't 100% of God. Well, so the thing is, you can have a projection that's literally just a hologram or a projection, or you can have a quote-unquote projection, which is a human being, a flesh-and-blood human being. I think Jesus was and is the latter. Uh, Well, uh, you also, because everyone is going to be saved at the end of the day, you know, what what is the point of everything? I mean, like you know, there is sin and the there is judgment, right at the end. So, uh, is there? I'm not a certain on this. I'm end? I'm not certain on this, but I believe that everyone is saved in the end. However, I def what I am certain of is that there is a hell, even if it's not forever. So maybe we should speak of it as purgatory. I'm not sure. That's that's sort of a tomato tomato thing, but um, uh. I believe that, that sin is done in ignorance. That I, be, I believe that what is right is right for reasons. Um, I believe morality is objective. So um, what is good or right is good for reasons of which one can be either ignorant or cognizant. And I believe if one is truly cognizant of those reasons, then one chooses the good. So that's the sense in which I would agree with someone like Socrates when Socrates said, no one knowingly chooses evil. Um, and so I think ultimately sin is rooted in ignorance and, um, like every sin is an illusion. Like when you, when you are worshiping lust as your highest God, as your highest value or your God, or you're worshiping or you're, you're sort of 
worshiping your ego or worshiping money. You believe these things can make you happy forever, but that's an illusion because only the truth and agape can, can well, only agape can make you happy forever. Um, only that reality once lived into, you know, can, can, can make you happy over the longest of time frames or over eternity. Everything else is going to break. Everything else is a, is a false God. It's not eternal. It's not fit for eternity. Um, and I think that in purgatory, you come to see, uh, you know, all the mistakes that you made if you lived a life that was devoted to, to, to lust or greed or ego or pride. You see all the, all the pain that you caused others, and you see really how, how flimsy and false that God was. And then you repent, and then you're ready to, to re-enter relationship with God. That's at least, yeah, that's because, you know, a lot of people think that there's no hope of, you know, grace or merit or salvation after you die. And they, they quote Hebrews 9.27, for it is appointed unto man to die once and after that the judgment, as though it were some kind of knockdown um, argument against any hope of postmortem salvation. But to me, that verse just doesn't say enough for us to really firmly draw that conclusion. And, and indeed, many early Christians believed in postmortem salvation. And that's just a thing we no longer believe in now. It's, it's no longer fashionable, but it, it, it was, it was, it's not as if uh, postmortem salvation was always considered a heresy. Indeed, most early Christians believed in Just to summarize, Cal, it's been awesome talking to you, man. I actually agree with a lot of it. And uh, in a, in a Likewise, sense, well, know, I'm glad I, I made a modicum of sense. Some of your listeners might say, well, this guy's full of crap. You know, he, he, he's, he's contradicting himself left and right, which is fine, you know, because maybe I am. But I'm just giving you, I'm giving it to you like the, you know, the, I'm just giving you like, the views that make most sense to me as I currently understand them, not at all pretending that I've got it all figured out and that it's my way or the highway theologically. So, yeah. And I guess like, you know, if people ask me about my beliefs, I would also be a, a very good heretic. You know? <laughs> just to summarize, I guess, um, you know, the goal of this, uh, the interview thing, I guess, and my, you know, inquiry for philosophies, uh, I guess initially, for you know, to answer the questions of humanity, which is our our identity, you know. So you know, you uh, knowing God, how we uh, our salvation and our, what our role is in the universe, you know. So, uh, so can you tell? I guess so. For our past, I guess you know, you, you we are created, right? And at some point, of course, you probably we believe in the big bang. So I assume you also believe in evolution. So. Can you I tell? Do, I do. Can you tell us who who is mankind in in terms of his past? Who are we right now in the present? What what are we supposed to do right now? Right? And okay, uh, yeah. What is our future? So I, I know there's people who've thought about this a lot more than I have. I'm thinking, for example, of um, Teilhard de Chardin, um, who all I really know about him is I think he was a Jesuit. He wrote a lot about the evolution of consciousness. And I don't have too many thoughts about that, except to say that it's clear when you look at the Bible that that's a progressive revelation. And, um, you know, the view of God that we get is not necessarily completely different, you know, uh, in, in the New Testament as compared to the Old. I, I wouldn't want to be, be a Marcionite. But it's, it's, it's clearly different. It's at least more specific, but it also feels kind of different. So anyway, that's that's a whole sort of pregnant topic of theological discussion 
But um, yeah, it's clear that through as the Bible advances, you get a more clear picture of him. In the beginning, he's a man, you know, who walks around in the Garden of Eden. And it's clear uh, that, you know, most Christians interpret that description of God as an anthropomorphism. And later on, you know, he's, he's less obviously present as like a physical human, but we still talk about like the Ark of the Covenant has a mercy seat, you know, it's like it has a seat. What part of God is that for? I won't, you know, say it out loud, but, uh, you know, I'll just leave that open to the imagination, I suppose. And, and just to give you an indication of still how anthropomorphized God is, you know, uh, how anthropomorphized their conception of God is at that time. And then you go on and then you have a more abstract and distant God. And then we've sort of shifted from, you know, that's, that's the part where we have like the prophets, Isaiah and so forth. Their God is more of a, is, is, is more abstract and distant and transcendent. And, and they're, you know, they're less concerned with rituals than they are with like morality. And that's like a higher stage in evolution. And then I think the highest level of evolution is, is what you see in Jesus. And, and society 2,000 years ago, I don't think was ready for, oh, excuse me. Um, I don't know exactly what the timeline is, you know, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some people say it's a literal period of 6,000 years. Um, even if we just took that and ran with it for the sake of argument, you know, although I, I believe in an old earth, you know, I would say that, Society was not human, human, human society was not ready for Jesus, uh, six or 8,000 years ago, whatever, whatever the case may be. They were only ready for Jesus 2000 years ago. So that's when God sent Jesus. Humanity and society and culture had to evolve to the point where it made sense for God to express himself in the way that he does in the new Testament as love. Um, and, um, to give us, at least an example of that in the person of Jesus, you know, whose, whose words and deeds are recorded for us in the gospels. Um, so the evolution of consciousness, you know, we're talking about our own, on our own 4d timeline. Yeah. I think that's a thing. Um, uh, 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 I, I don't think God's consciousness strictly evolves. You know, I don't think he moves from states of like, um, I don't think he, as explained before, I don't think he comes into being and then like evolves his consciousness to, to, you know, the level we would associate with God. God is always God. Mm -hmm. So in terms, of, okay, well, if that's, uh, if humanity, I guess, from the, from the past, you know, uh, evolved, and, and of course, you know, we have become who we are right now. Uh, what what are we supposed to do in this in this you know short lifespan we have? We have to, we have to, we have to love. We have to love the Lord. You have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the limit that will require you to die to yourself. And I think you see that again embodied in the person of Jesus, and in his life, death, and resurrection. And it can be anything, I guess. In turn, it depends uniquely uh, to every individual on how yeah yeah so the, the manifest that. yeah exactly that's going to depend on the particulars of your situation absolutely and uh, I guess uh, you know if I am going to uh, I get you know do that right follow the the two greatest commandments uh, for and uh, what what should I look forward to in terms of the future. So, yeah, I, I like in terms of the afterlife, mm -hmm. 
Well, I do believe in an afterlife. Uh, you know, I believe in hell, even if I don't necessarily believe that it's forever. Um, and I believe in, well, heaven, but I don't think it's static perfection. You see, I don't think we become perfected and then we do nothing or um, I don't think that heaven is absolutely free of, of, of change or time-like dynamics. I think if it were, it would be really boring quite apart from anything else, but there's the, there's a deeper philosophical, a deeper philosophical question of whether consciousness can even exist in quiescence, whether such a thing as static consciousness even makes sense, or if it's rather, as I believe it is, uh, an, an oxymoron or contradiction in terms. I think static consciousness is a contradiction in terms. I think that what in some way you can liken God to an artist who's always exploring the dynamic between freedom and constraint and meaning always comes from the uncertain and the undefined. And so we're always pursuing meaning. And I think that continues in the afterlife. I don't think it's static or boring. And I, and the thing is, I would really just put it like God is life and, 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 and distance from God, apartness from God is death. So how is the condition of being separate from God um, as, as far as it is possible to be separate from God uh, where God is ultimate reality and, 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 and heaven is, 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 is the condition of, of living into uh, what God has purposed for you and what God desires for you. And to be specific, I guess, you know, um, but I believe you, there's life after death. Absolutely. Yeah. So when absolutely. you say there's life after death, does that mean that, uh, heaven is not in, in the realm of the physical? In terms I of believe that? it is not correct. Okay. And in, in this sense also, I believe there is a metaphysical domain that you, you can enter into. And the metaphysical exactly it's like. domain would also uh, be like a vessel for our consciousness, uh, the same way our brain, our physical Consciousness brain. is real tricky, man. I, I tell you, I, the way I see it, it's like your brain is a language. And once your body dies, that language can still be translated into other dimensions of reality. But so when you come to being in some other dimension of reality, some metaphysical dimension of reality, you might say, you're not something radically unlike your brain and your experience of reality is not like disembodied. It can, it can still feel very embodied. Mm -hmm. um, how, about, how about memory? Would, uh, would memory, me I think, is what makes a person the person who they are. I think if you take away we, memory, memory, like reincarnation, be, mm -hmm. be, if, you, if you talk about reincarnation and losing memories, then I think that's really just equivalent to speaking of the loss of a person, mm -hmm. the loss of personhood. Of course, you, you would also believe that we, we would bring our memory to the afterlife. I right? do. I do. I do not believe in reincarnation, at least not reincarnation uh, without persistence of memory. I believe in the persistence me of memory as a person making criterion. Um, uh, and so, yes. And, and for those who suffer dementia at the end of life, I would say, God, I, 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 I believe with near certainty that, that, that God restores their lost memories to them and makes mm -hmm. them whole.
Okay, cool. Well, well, I, I guess, man, like we've talked about so much and I wish I had more time and, you know, I could, I actually have a lot of ideas as well that I wanted to put it put out there, but you know, it's your, it's your, uh, you're the, the one I'm interviewing and I re- totally loved learning about your belief system and, and I am going to actually read the more about uh, uh, Langan, right? Chris Langan. Yes. Yes. Yeah. L-A-N-G-A-N. And is is there anything you would like to promote to all uh, the the listeners? You know, uh, maybe uh, how they can reach you out, reach to, out to you as well. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, the thing about Langan, I'll just say real quick, he's he's going to be controversial to many people um, in terms of his politics and his ethics, and I don't fully agree with with all his views on metaphysics. Though I find him to be very persuasive. Let's put it like that. But, for, you know, as I, I wouldn't want to give someone the impression that um, uh, uh, I, I in any way stand for Langan or completely represent his ideas because I, I really don't, you know. Um, uh, and um, there are definitely areas of, you know, there are definitely differences of opinion between him and me. But, you know, for that, that being said, I think he's totally brilliant and totally underrated. So that's why I expect him to become more influential as the decades go on. But um, so anyway, so, but um, Langan and his CTMU, I would certainly recommend, I can't recommend that highly enough. That's, to- that's totally groundbreaking philosophy. It's just very difficult to understand. Um, and as, as I said before, I don't pretend to understand it fully. Um, now uh, I do have my own podcast um, it's called Universalism Against the World. So in that podcast, I'm really actually developing my reasons for suspecting that in the end, everyone is saved, despite the reality of hell and, and punishment in the afterlife. Um, and so that's universalism in the world. Uh, again, sorry, universalism against the world. That's sort of a, a, a cute title, I guess. Um, and... Um, that's where you can listen to me uh, sort of uh, do speculative theology. Awesome. All right. Well, Cal, it's been awesome having you on the show, man. And thank you so much for taking up my offer and uh, have a great day. Yeah. Thank you very much, Elmo. Let me know when this podcast goes up. All right. Take care, bro. Uh, Take care. Likewise. So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. It takes a lot of ingredients to fix or build a car. Like cooking, but without the frozen dinner, easy way out eBay Motors has 122 million parts. It's always the right fitment, so you can follow any recipe to a T. Whether it's a vintage Italian coupe that's classic like grandma's meatballs or a German luxury car that's as complicated as Oma's Rouladen, to cook up something great in the garage, use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Holidays are here, and so is fashionable fitness. Gift yourself a Samsung Galaxy Z Flip 3 5G, a phone that folds in half to literally stand on its own. Pair it with the Galaxy Watch 4 for ultimate wellness and wow factor. Check health stats, flex personal records. Over 90 activities can be tracked, like biking, swimming, golfing, and more. Invest in yourself with tech made to crush goals. Holidays open up with Galaxy.
Shop it all at Samsung.com. 5G connection and availability may vary. Check with Carrier. Products sold separately.